In the Moeta Sabagoatu, where a heart was a mass and Buddha sat. In the Moeta Sabagoatu, where a just as a personal biographical data, you know, I didn't, I didn't know that I was operating from fear until I um, had quite a lot of experience with meditation. So, in a psychological language, I'm called a um, a counterphobic fear type, and what that means is is, is that. Um, it looks like I'm not frightened, and I'm actually scared. <laughs> and so, you know, I had this sense of myself. My own personal self-identity was based around a sense of being fearless and courageous and capable and all the rest of that. And I had this bright smile that I would whip out and bring to all kinds of circumstances. And I had no idea that underneath all of that was a kind of like baseline terror. And I began to get a sense of that when I went to Australia. And, you know, I have a connection with the earth. I always have done. But when I was in Australia, I was living in a national park and I was surrounded by, you know, 40,000 acres of wilderness and the park immediately around me. And there were three other national parks. So there was like a, a million acres of land that was unbroken wilderness that I was in the middle of. And, you know, I was born in L.A., you know. And so as much as I really had a feeling for nature, I didn't really have a lot of direct experience with it except for going camping. And when I went to Australia, I'd never, I'd never been before, so it was the first time I'd been there, and there was a kind of feeling of, oh, my God, what have I done? Where am I? You know, everything is different and weird. But after the initial kind of shaking with it all, I began to get a feeling of being welcomed by the land. You know, and I felt, I always usually feel pretty okay with nature. But this was like, yay, you're here. Isn't this wonderful, you know? It was not just an okay feeling, it was a sense of celebration from the land. And the celebration from the land that I felt helped me to feel a sense of welcome. And that welcome allowed me to touch things that I had never touched before. And, you know, one of the things that I touched was just the degree to which my life had been motivated and driven by fear. So I needed a very profound sense of safety to be able to touch the terror that had been driving me. And I found that safety from this sense of tremendous welcome and embrace from the land. You know, this incredible like, sense of joy or celebration that I was there. You know. So welcome, the sense of welcome, the sense of safety is really essential in order to open up some of the stuff that's really edgy. We can't touch it unless we've got the ground to do that work.
And for me, it was very revealing that after a long period of meditation, you know, years and years and years of meditation, there were layers that I didn't have access to that revealed themselves when the conditions ripened. And I had a sense of being safe enough to allow this stuff to emerge. So, you know, I'm sitting here, and before everybody came, Anila, my dear friend Anila and I were out in the backyard unwinding from the trip down from Berkeley, and I saw this big, magnificent tree out back, and the first thing I did was go and sit, sit at the base of it. And at the tree, it's a fabulous tree. It's just wonderful. I don't know if you've all met that tree, but it's a tree worth meeting. It's great. Anyway, I'm sitting out there, and I look down, and I notice that there's a, an ant's an ant trail just a few inches away from where my robes are. And I have an affinity for ants because I had some very lovely experiences with the ants when I was in Australia. But I come in here tonight and notice that some of my ant friends Mm -hmm. have found their way under my robes and are also enjoying the meditation. (laughs) (laughs) So we... I needed to have a sense of ground in order to touch deeper layers of what was there. And as I did that, I could see a kind of stratification for myself of stuff that I hadn't explored before that was comprised of anger and fear and identification with myself in a particular way. So I had all kinds of ideas about who I was. And the reality was is, is that some of the times those were accurate, some of the times those didn't apply, and some of those times those ideas about myself were actually opposite to the way I was directly experiencing myself. And what was needed for me was to empty out the ideas about who I was and to come directly in contact with what it was that I was experiencing. And I couldn't do that when I felt scared. I had to do that when I felt okay. And oddly enough, it happened in the wilderness rather than in a sense of, you know, being in a building or being in a community or being around other monastics. It happened in the wilderness because in the wilderness I didn't have a sense of there were conflicting interests that were operating. There was no politics. It was, for me, it was just very straightforward reading of what was going on. And the ants, interestingly enough, were a really huge part of my learning. And so one of the things that happened when I first arrived was um, I was doing a a very particular meditation practice and up at very strange hours, and I was watching this ant's nest that was right outside the meditation hall. And, you know, I, I thought, well, the ants' nest was half on the walking path, and that really, that, well, that really wasn't the best place for the ants' hill. That really the best place for the ant hill was to not be on the walking path next to the meditation. So I took a broom and I started sweeping the base of the ant hill, thinking that if I just gently brushed the base of the ant hill, you know, I'd encourage them to just gently relocate, you know. So only somebody from L.A. would think like that or somebody who was born in a city, because, you know, what that activated was, you know, the ants were on absolute red alert, and they came out with like a search-and-destroy kind of <laughs> mission to, 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 to resolve the threat of their home. So, 
even though I was born in L.A., I'm not entirely slow. So I realized that they were charging at me that I had agitated them. So I went and I took the broom and I put it against the building, which was where the meditation hall was, which was about six feet away. And then I thought, well, I'll come back and I'll bring them some loving kindness. Well, only somebody with L.A. would walk back into a charging ant's nest with the idea of bringing them loving kindness. Okay? Nobody in the bush would try that. (laughs) So I walked back into the charging ant's nest with a feeling of wanting to bring care and kindness. And not one of those ants bit me. Not one. 10,000 ants were mobilized in a search-and-destroy mission, and not one bit me. And then I realized what had happened. They knew the difference. They got it. They got the difference between my... I wasn't trying to hurt them, but what they experienced as threat, and me walking back in with another attitude. I was totally blown away. I couldn't believe it. And then I was walking on my walking path outside my kuti, and I had this fabulous little kuti. I just loved it. And the Cadillac walking path, it was like 75 feet long and silky white sand. And I looked out over a canyon. I couldn't see anything except wilderness. It was just spectacular. And about 15 feet away from my walking path was a a, a bull's ant's nest. And the bull ants are ants that are about this big, and they've got pitchforks. And the pitchforks are to, like hypodermic needles, and they, they bite you. And when you've been bitten by a bull ant, you know about it, because it swells up to like the size of a, of, a, of a golf ball, and it burns for a week, and then it itches like crazy itching for another week. So you, you learn about bull's, ant, bulls ants very quickly, and you stay clear of them. And even though they're this big and I'm this big, they're completely aggressive when you are on their territory, okay? So their nest was 15 feet away from my walking path. And when I was walking on the path that was right adjacent to their nest, I had to be very careful because it was their path and I had to watch out for them. But if I was on my path, and I was on my path a lot, I could walk day or night with my eyes closed, forward or backwards. They were constantly on my path, on forays, looking for dead bugs to drag back to their nest. They would watch out for me, because it was my path. This is an ant. It's this big. Okay. They totally get it about territory. What's their territory? What's not their territory? And when it's not their territory, what kind of things they needed to do? And I thought, wow. If an ant knows the difference, if an ant understands respect, what happens if I lived like that? What happens if I didn't only give respect when I felt somebody was worthy? What would happen if I lived with respect because respect was a a good way of being? And what would happen if I related to myself that way? What would happen if I related to everything I was experiencing with that level of respect? And it was this attitude that allowed me to begin to start opening up and receiving some of the information that let me see the fear that I had been living with that I didn't have access to. 
So part of it came from safety, and part of it came from a change of view about what practice was supposed to be about. Rather than the idea that practice is supposed to be about getting out of suffering, my practice shifted to meet and receive what was actually happening and touch it, open to it. It was completely transformative, and it was the ants that showed me the way. So who are our teachers? Where do we learn? Tremendously transformative experience opening up to learning to relate with respect to everything that arises rather than to try and get out of suffering. And what was fascinating to me about doing that was the result was is that the sense of me meditating softened. The sense of me being in nature softened. The sense of me being in a friendly environment softened. And what eventually I began to feel was there was just nature. There was just nature. It wasn't inside nature and outside nature and me nature and everybody else nature. There was just nature. And it was just arising and known and seizing. And as a result of nature arising and seizing, there was no sense of limitation of where compassion flowed because everything belonged. Nothing was not part of what belonged because there was no edges. I didn't limit myself in an identity and then exclude everything that didn't fit as part of that and say that the compassion only fits to the edges of what I have identified with as belonging. So how do we bring a sense of this into the world where there's cars and there's sirens and there's electricity and there's emails and there's computers and there's details and there's dates and there's things to do and there's all kinds of stuff around that's not safe. And I think the way that we do it, the way I do it, is by touching into my body and into the present moment, by feeling what's actually happening for me right now, seeing where I'm tense and relaxing the tension, seeing if I can allow my body to to come into contact with what's happening in my body and then feel where my contraction is around what it is that I'm experiencing. Okay. So how I experience myself is going to change depending on the circumstances that are around me. I identify myself as this under one circumstance and another circumstance it's totally different. The way I relate to Anila will be one way, the way I relate to Lulu is another way, the way I relate to Steve is another way. Okay. My sense of who I am arises in dependence of the conditions that are around me. That's completely correct. Where we get into trouble is we fixate our sense of who we are and then drag the fixated sense we are into other circumstances and then feel frustrated because it doesn't fit and it takes an enormous amount of energy because who we are in another circumstance is actually quite different. And so we can't constantly empty ourselves out and let go and not be anybody with this new person, this new circumstance, because we're afraid of that, of not being anybody. So the way of understanding and letting go of attachment is to begin to get a feeling for what happens when we cannot locate ourselves anywhere. So that we start with replacing unskillful attachments with skillful attachments. 
We start with replacing our addictions that cause us hell to our addictions which cause us health. And then we begin to touch what is it that is wanting? What is it that is grasping? What is it that needs to locate itself in something? And what happens if we cannot do that or we don't find ourselves that way? You know, for me, it's just such an incredible pleasure to have Anila here tonight. I cannot tell you. I've been living in Colorado for a couple of years, and I am the only monastic there. And I came from England, and when I was in England, I was living in a community of monastics. And when I left, it was, well, unsettling would probably be an English understatement. And I've been on my own a lot for the last two and a half years. And, and so to have a other monastic sister that there's a real rapport with, for me, has been absolutely fabulous. And one of the things that I've sat with in these last two and a half years is, who am I? You know, who am I? Who am I in a context that is not affirming my sense of myself? You know, people don't know what a monastic is or how to relate to them or what, they're, what they do or any of that. And in the longing to know who am I, I've had to let go of any concept, any construct, any attachment that I have developed in association with my connection to being a nun. I've had to see my identification and attachment to being a nun and let it go. And when I let it go, I'm in a wide open space of I don't know what emerges from that, not knowing. There's an enormous sense of uncertainty that one has got to be able to tolerate when one lets go of attachment. Because before something else comes in to take shape, one's in a space of not knowing. It's like you close one door, And before the next door opens up, you're just hanging out, not knowing who you are and how it shapes up and what it looks like or what it is supposed to be doing. And this capacity to tolerate this uncertainty is one of the keys to being able to let go of our fear-driven motivations to let go of our attachments, and to let go of our identification with who we are, what we think we are supposed to be doing, and the superimposition of our goals on top of what is actually happening. We have got to be able to let go in order to do that. What helps support us to do this work is being grounded in our body, living with some degree of harmlessness and integrity that's congruent with your values, having a framework of a sense of a path that helps support, and people who understand the value of this radical approach to life and who are prepared to be there and support and mirror for you the value that you have to offer this world even when you don't have a clue what it is. Because it hasn't taken shape yet. It's not clear yet. You don't have language for it. But what most of us do is rather than open up to this space of uncertainty, we grab hold of anything 
instead of being uncertain because it's much more comfortable to be holding on to something which no longer serves, even if it drags us into hell, than to let go and not know who we are. So it doesn't mean that we become mashed potatoes and we give up any sense of goal or any sense of, of, of direction or any sense of priorities and that we just completely open up the floodgates and say, you know, I'm just going to go with the flow. It's not like that. But what it is, 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 is that our understanding of the goals that we have is not coming from a grasping. It's coming from a having released grasping. It's a very different motivation. And ironically, when we have released grasping, what it does is it allows us to become absolutely fearless rather than fearful. When we have let go of our attachment to outcome, when we've let go of expecting things to be a particular way, when we've let go of trying to cram ourselves into a box then what we can experience is the fullness of our potential of who we are and what it is that we have to offer into this world. And it's incredibly powerful. It's also terrifying to come in contact with our real power for most of us is terrifying. And so rather than come in contact with that, then we keep ourselves in a box which is small and narrow because we cannot tolerate the fullness of who we are and what that means in terms of the possibility of living in this world and the range of what can open up for us when we actually allow ourselves to be who we are. So it takes incredible courage to touch our fear, perceive it, allow it, and allow it to release, and to allow the identities that we have formed around who we are to let that go as well, and to begin to get a feeling of if we are not stuffing ourselves into a box, what kind of shape do we take? How does it shift and change in different circumstances? What does it look like? How does it move? What does it breathe? What does it feel like? The Buddhist path of cultivating a sense of integrity, of bringing a sense of stillness, of cultivating community, of understanding that in order to do this work, we have got to be tethered to our own goodness. Because when the stuff is coming out, the tendency is, is, is that we feel it is too much for us to face. But when we're tethered to our own goodness, then we have a ballast that gives us the strength to meet what it is that we need to face. And part of the real value of community is for people to mirror for each other your goodness, your power, your beauty, your aspiration, that we forget ourselves. You know, so one of the first precepts is to not kill or not to harm. And if people really take that to heart, really take that to heart, it means that we are no longer going to trash ourselves beat ourselves up, berate ourselves, condemn ourselves, slander ourselves. 
And if somebody who is also clear that non-harming is a path that is worth cultivating, and you see somebody doing that, you say, time out. It is not okay for you to trash yourself in front of me. When we stop doing that to ourselves, what happens when we say no to harm? When we say no to harm inwardly, then it gives us the courage to say no to harm outwardly. And what does that look like for you in your life, in your living situation, in your families, in your community, in the crazy, insane world that we're living in right now? What does that look like? So fear, attachment, and identity are central. Absolutely central. Central to understand how they arise. Central to understand that in them is the absolute key to an unraveling that allows something exquisite to emerge. And this exquisite is not something that needs to be fabricated. Is not something that anything needs to be done to create. It's something that needs to be realized. It is present. It is there. It is here. It is for each of us to touch. And so when we get a sense that this awareness pervades everything, when we let our anchors drop into the earth and recognize that the reason or the way that we can do that is because awareness suffuses everything, we are just touching into awareness that is already present, then this gives us a context that is much bigger than the definition and limitation that we normally take. And that can give an enormous amount of strength to process, to hold, to lift, and to let go. I don't know about you, but for me it has been invaluable. Absolutely invaluable. So I'd like to stop here with this part of this and shift format and have this be more of a conversation, discussion, and time for feedback. But it was the ants. They were the ones that helped me shift my motivation and open up something that had a really powerful effect. So who are our teachers? Where do we learn? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.